0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, as we're getting settled in and our online viewers are speedily finding their text. Last week we read about a widow whose husband left her sons in her in so much debt when he died that she was about to send her sons into bond service to pay off the debt. And this widow sought the man of God, Elisha, who gave her the perfect solution to her problem. And this was even before Dave Ramsey. Where do you think Dave Ramsey got his ideas about financial soundness? And in that lesson, we learned some hard but valuable truths about managing our finances. And above all that, we saw God's grace in action. That was the best part of it. Now we're going to look at a new passage, and we're in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was, that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Shunam was a city in the land that was given to the tribe of Issachar in Joshua chapter 19, whenever the Lots of land were divided among the children of Israel. They did it by tribe. And in 1 Samuel chapter 28, the Philistines had gathered to that place, to Shunem, to battle against Saul and Israel. And now Shunem is the place of this woman, this great woman, whose name is not given to us. And we will now know her only as the Shunammite woman. All that means is she hails from Shunamm. And it says in the text that she was a great woman. That means she was in a high position. But what made her great in God's eyes would not be the position she held in society, but how she treated the man of God how she thought of what the man of God said. And it says in the text that she constrained him to eat bread. And that word constrained is to strongly encourage. She didn't just give him a casual invitation. I'll bet you've done this before or had somebody do it. Hey, come by and see us sometime. Well, you don't really mean that, do you? It's just a a salutation we give. And let me tell you, I love every one of you. I love my neighbors and I love my family. But there are some times when I'm at home and I hope nobody knocks on the door. I'm having a good, peaceful time. As I've told Brother Richard before, my goal when I relax is to get my feet higher than my heart. And when I've done that in my recliner, I'm relaxed. Don't always want somebody to drop by. But to constrain someone would mean to say, what are you doing next Saturday at 5 p.m.? Because we would like to invite you and your husband and your lovely children over to dinner at our house. I'm going to fry fish. Now, that's more of a strong urging, and that's the idea behind this constraint. And it says at the end of verse 8, And so it was, that as oft or as often as he passed by, he turned in thither, to eat bread. This Shunammite woman had successfully convinced Elisha to eat with her family every time he passed by, or as we would say, every time he was in town. And this would be a guaranteed meal for him when he was in Shunam, maybe more than one. For him to be comfortable eating with this woman and her husband Elisha would no doubt have to be convinced that it pleased God for him to do so. In other words, he wasn't hanging around with a couple of worldly people who tried to get him off track, but people who appreciated him for who he was. This woman was not a harlot. She wasn't an adulterer. She wasn't trying to take advantage of Elisha's spiritual gifts, as we'll see just to get carnal things for herself, like money or fame or power. What a privilege this would be for me if I were to have Elisha eat at my table, knowing what a powerful man of God he was. Verse 9, And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. Now, we'll get to verse 10 in a moment. But I want you to notice that this woman, as much as she admired Elisha, the man of God, she admired her husband even more to go to him and to seek his approval for building a little chamber For this prophet to stay in. A godly husband and a godly wife will just have this arrangement in their marriage. In a godly marriage, there's no sneaking around. There's not any deception. There shouldn't be any pulling power plays on one another to get your way and so on. But notice in verse 9, and this is the phrase that really sticks out to me, a holy man of God. A holy man of God. That's what she called him. And that's what was appealing to her. Remember, the text tells us that she was a great woman. So she didn't need great men in society to prop her up or to give her attention or to make her more popular. She valued this holy man of God more than any other man save her husband and I imagine she wasn't interested in taking selfies with him or with the governor or getting autographs from famous people, professional athletes, being invited to these large, carnal, worldly feasts. That doesn't appear to be the type of woman this was. You know, I've never been an autograph seeker. It's just not my thing. And the man whose signature was most precious to me and still is is my dad's. When my dad would write a letter, my parents divorced when I was very young. And when my dad would write me a letter, that was a precious thing because we hand-wrote letters back then. Most of y'all are old enough to remember handwriting letters. You now we didn't have texts, we didn't have cell phones, any of that. And well, when you went to the mailbox and you found a letter that was written to you, that was a wonderful thing to get. It wasn't junk mail. But my heroes were men in my family, not professional athletes and certainly not movie stars or politicians. And I've never thought it was a good idea for a church to let the so-called famous, powerful people speak in their pulpits. But let me tell you who I would make an exception for, and that's a holy man of God. When Brother Barker spoke to us and shared with us his burden for the Philippines right down here. Brother Fulton and I gladly yielded the front of the church to him. That's a holy man of God right there. When Brother Lawrence Rome and Brother Chad Wynn gave their testimonies of salvation and how they were led from darkness to light. Standing right here behind this pulpit, we were glad to have them do so. Those were holy men of God. Now you know the world wouldn't think of them that way. They'd say, "Why these were a couple of Lost fellows who just became Christians not that long ago. What do you mean, holy men of God? Well, we're going to see what the Bible says is a holy man of God versus what the world thinks here in just a moment. But I love what is important to this Shunammite woman, that Elisha is a holy man of God. That's why she wanted him to turn in and eat with them. That's why she wanted to have this chamber built. And it says in the, at the end of verse 9, which passeth by us continually. That is, Elisha, when he comes through, he passes by, he walks by our house continually. And while most of Israel took Elisha for granted, just like they did the other prophets, this woman did not. She said, a holy man of God walks by us continually. Not some popular worldly preacher Not some big-time singer, but a holy man of God. And you know that phrase, man of God, has been abused and abused by men who were not men of God and by their admirers and their followers. Verse 10, Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. Maybe that's where Tom Bodet got the idea that he'll just leave the light on for you at Motel 6. Because they left a candlestick for Elisha. A chamber. And we've run across the word chamber a time or two. Particularly when we studied the building of the temple that Solomon built. And where there were chambers or parlors even a loft. Those are two other words that it means. And it's where the phrase prophet's chamber come, came from. Some churches have a little bedroom with a, a shower and maybe a, a nightstand, something very simple, where visiting preachers or missionaries or other traveling ministers might have a lodging place. What we would do is simply put that person up in what used to be the comfort inn And we stayed there one time, by the way, en route to somewhere else, and it was the uncomfortable inn. But it's now the sleep inn, and I hope people sleep well there. And that's what we would use for a prophet's chamber unless somebody, I believe uh, Leslie's put people up in one of their houses out in the country. And so that's the idea there is to have a place for people to stay, not just anyone, but someone who you value, someone who you trust. And the presence of the holy man of God was so important to this Shunammite woman that she not only wanted him to eat with her husband and her, but she also wanted him to stay there. Don't just drop in and get a meal and then go find somewhere else to stay, but stay with us. So not only would Elisha have a table at which he could eat, but he also had a place to rest his weary head during these journeys through Shunamm. Let's make a little bit more spiritual application here. Increase upon this theme. First of all, and I would ask this to anybody, not just the people in the church, but anybody who might scroll through and happen to watch at this time, what is a holy man of God to you? When you think of a holy man of God, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? And I'll bet you it's a long robe. I'll bet you it's somebody standing way up on a high pulpit in some church somewhere, or it's a pastor of a mega church, or maybe the Pope, or for some, it's a monk who lives in seclusion in a high mountain somewhere and avoids all contact with the world. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible tell us? First of all, a holy man of God must be saved. You might think, well, of course, Brother Andy. Well, let me tell you, that's the main problem right there. That's the number one problem. That's the gate that doesn't always get checked. Are you saved? If you ask, I wish you could sit down all of the religious leaders in Maybank, Texas, the ones who are pastors or priests or whatever they call themselves of the various churches, and one by one go down the row and say, I'm lost and I'd like you to tell me how to be saved. And boy, you'd get all kinds of answers because we have. We have asked pastors Brother Fulton has asked pastors over the phone, in person, what does it take for a person to be saved? And boy, you get all kinds of things. That's the reason we have a website called NoI'mSaved.com, is because of the confusion that was caused by people, mostly in independent fundamental Baptist churches, but also others are represented as well. He has to be saved. First Peter two five he's talking to Christians here he says ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus so he calls all of the believers a holy priesthood and we are we're made holy by our high priest Jesus Christ so that's the first thing this holy man of god has to be if he's going to be a holy man of god in the eyes of the bible he has to be saved. And secondly, and we're applying it here to one who has the office of a prophet or a teacher, an evangelist, one of the the places in one of the offices in the Bible that were named. This holy man of God must be a student of God's word, which is holy. Listen to Paul's admonition to Timothy. Now, Timothy, when he received this letter from the Apostle Paul, he was a pastor. He was already saved. And Paul didn't write to him and say, Well, Timothy, you're, you're saved. That's good enough for me. You just do the best you can. No, listen to what he said. I'll read 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But continue thou... Now, this is Paul to Timothy. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Those are all things that Timothy would do as a pastor. That the man of God, who is that? That's Timothy may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Here's the sum of all that. A holy man of God is one who is saved and who knows the holy scriptures are enough for him to do works that are good in God's sight. You will not find a passage in the Bible that says a holy man of God can be holy and still be lost. You're not going to see it. You'll not find a passage that says a holy man of God can be willingly ignorant of the Scriptures. Now, when I became a Christian and then when I began teaching, I was more ignorant of the Scriptures than I am now. It's not to say that you have to be a master of the Scriptures through and through in order to be able to teach, or I fear none of us would be qualified except for the Lord Jesus himself. But those are the two keys did you notice that I didn't say anything about the type of clothing they have to wear, whether it's a robe with these stripes on it or some sort of headdress or any of that? Saved? And the Scriptures, a student of God's Word. You know, I don't understand why people fall for worldly preachers seeing it from my point of view but I do from their point of view and here's here's what happens if you ever asked yourself why do people fall for these worldly preachers well one reason is that the people aren't saved and if they are they don't know enough of the scriptures to root out a false preacher and those are vulnerable sheep by the way people who are new christians And don't yet know their scriptures well enough and are easily led astray. And we protect them. We guard them. It doesn't happen as often as it used to. But from time to time, I would see one of our dear, vulnerable sheep either repost something or put a comment down or agree with something someone said that was not correct scripturally. And I would gently put something on there to let them know, hey, be careful Because that's not what the Bible says. And every single time, those vulnerable sheep would say, Oh, thank you, in some way. And I know the pastor's done it too. We do that because we know that new Christians are so vulnerable to being led astray. That's why we keep feeding this. And the more we feed you this, the less vulnerable you get to being led astray. And then you finally get to a point where you're less likely to be led astray by false doctrine than you used to be. That's, that's a natural process, isn't it? And so, to answer the question, why do people fall for worldly preachers, one is they're not saved, or if they are, they don't know enough of the Scripture to root out false preachers. And a second reason, and it goes right along with it, is that lost worldly preachers have a father who is the greatest counterfeiter ever known to mankind, and that's Satan. You know, when I was a young trooper, people used crude methods to try to make fake driver license. They'd take a razor blade and cut out that last number on the year of birth and back it up a little so it looked like they were 21. And boy, when you held one of those up, you'd, you'd just shake your head and say, what a crude effort. Well, let me tell you. The technology has come a long way. And sometimes you have to take a double glance at some of those things and examine them and put the ultraviolet light on them and all of these other ways we use to look at documents to see if they're, they're fake. And Satan's even better than that. He is very convincing. And so you take a lost worldly preacher who has as his father the devil, the greatest counterfeiter ever. And you combine that with lost people or saved people who are ignorant of the Scriptures. And that's the perfect storm for false doctrine and for a false church. A holy man of God will never be a man who is unsaved or who leads God's people away from God's Word. And this is who Elisha was, and this is why he was valued by this Shunammite woman. What about you? You might say, well, I value the holy man of God just just like that woman did Elisha. Do you really? I mean, I hope you do, but do you miss Bible study regularly when you could be there? Do you study God's word for yourself? Is God's kingdom business your business too? The way you make a chamber for the holy men of God is not just to make them a place to stay at your house or prepare a meal for them at your table. It's to make a chamber in your inner man, in your heart, for the words of truth that that holy man of God speaks. Let's look at verse 11. And it fell on a day that he came thither and turned into the chamber and lay there. Now, we might make an assumption here, and it is correct, that when this Shunammite woman suggested to her husband... To make a chamber for this holy man of God to stay in and to put these furnishings in there. Now if my wife would have been that uh Shunammite woman, she'd have said, and we're gonna put some curtains and we're gonna have the wall painted and we're gonna put some she'd have done it up. But that's just that's why our we have nice things at the house is I have somebody who has an artistic touch, and I don't. I would be the one who'd say just put a bed and stool there and get some sheets, some dollar sheets from the dollar store. He'll be fine and he'll thank us for it. But this this woman had agreement with her husband. So however she presented it to him, he said, Amen. I like it. And we may conclude that because there is now an inner chamber where Elisha may turn in in verse 11. So as he was accustomed to doing, Elisha came to shoot him. Probably on his way to somewhere else. And he turned into his new lodging place. For a holy man of God, it is a wonderful thing to be received by those who appreciate you for what God has done through you. When you come to church or tune in from across the world, Brother Fulton and I appreciate why you've come. We know you didn't come to see the cool ties we wear Uh, or the physiques we sport, you came to hear the words that are spoken. And you didn't just come to hear or tune in to hear us tell a bunch of funny jokes and try to be charismatic. You came because habitually you have judged that the Word of God is taught from this pulpit, and that's what matters. And I have habitually judged that it is, or I wouldn't drive 60-plus miles one way twice a week. To hear it, it's worth every tenth of a mile to get down here. And you know that cost this great woman and her husband money and some labor to build this place, but it was worth every dime or every drachma, whatever their unit was. The next time that you think, well, I'm just another person sitting here in a pew, I'm not really that significant... I want you to remember something, especially those of you who are faithful, which the Sunday school crowd is usually among your most faithful. But if you're faithful to tune in or to sit in that pew, I want you to remember something the next time you think you're insignificant. You, friend, have made a chamber, an inner chamber in your heart for the holy man of God. And the holy man of God is glad he can turn into that chamber and, Knowing the one who made it for us values us for what God has done through us. The teaching gifts he's imparted to us and the, that we share those with you. That means a lot. So when we say, oh, it's good to see you. No, it really is. We re- it's good to see you tune in. It really is. We're not just doing that because we can say, oh, we had this many viewers today. Every single one of you is important to us. Because you said, I've got an inner chamber, and I want you to lodge there. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, Andy Shepherd himself is not worthy of an inner chamber in your heart. But God teaching his truth through the unworthy, weak, undeserving Andy Shepherd is worthy of an inner chamber. So by putting Elisha in an inner chamber, what was that woman really doing? She was putting God in an inner chamber. She was saying, you're always welcome in my house. Now look at verse 12. Now this is Elisha speaking. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. Now we meet Gehazi. And I had to get Gehazi out of my mind. I heard one of my old preachers say, preached several messages on Gehazi and that's how he said it and it doesn't really matter but I tried to get the right pronunciation here so Gehazi is a servant of the man of God and by serving the man of God who is he serving he's serving God servant that word is normally translated as young man you know in a in a perfectly godly society where everyone knew the Holy Scriptures from their youth as Timothy, it would always be the case that the older men were masters and the younger men were servants. It would always be the case in a perfectly godly society. Because increased knowledge of the Bible would come with increased age. But sadly, that's not the case. Why are there so many novices in the pulpit? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one is because so many older men failed to learn God's Word and teach it. Why are there women in the pulpit, or women having authority over the men? One reason is the men did not accept their responsibility as leaders, studying God's Word, leading their homes, leading their workplaces. That's not the only reason this happens, but I think it's a big reason. So Gehazi, based on the use of the word servant, was probably a young man who was the willing servant of the prophet Elisha, who is wise in the scriptures, just like his master Elijah was, who was wise in the scriptures, and whom the younger Elisha followed. And here in the text, Elisha had Gehazi summon this Shunammite woman called her. And I believe if we look at the next few verses, you'll conclude that this woman was not called to go into Elisha's room with him. That would have uh, been inappropriate. But rather, firstly, to stand before Gehazi. And this was smart, as it would no, like, no doubt be frowned upon for Elisha to be in a private chamber with another man's wife. You know, Elisha's behavior was being observed by all. Jesus' behavior was observed by all. And boy, did they look for reasons to accuse him. They found none, so they made some up. Calling him a blasphemer and accusing him of violating the Sabbath by doing good on it. So because Elisha's behavior was observed by all, and he was a holy man of God... Avoiding even the appearance of evil was the best course for him. It is for all of us, but especially for a holy man of God. And secondly, this Shunammite woman was an honorable woman. And it would be terrible if her fellow citizens heard that she was alone in a prophet's chamber with a prophet. Everyone should be wary of this dilemma, especially the holy man of God. One of the many consequences of sin, and this is by extension, this is the way it fell out, and it's where we are today. And we have to live with it. But one of those many consequences is that men and women work together in close quarters outside of their homes away from their spouses. And I'm sure every one of you have have dealt with that. I have. We have a mixture of men and women working at our place. Sometimes we ride in a patrol car together or dispatchers work in a in a dark, secluded environment together and they one may be of one gender and one of the other. It's the way it fell out. And I'll bet every one of you here could tell about a workplace incident that involved a married man or woman carrying on with a co-worker. It was not their spouse. You know, those things would never happen if God's plan had been followed from the very beginning. I mean, from the Garden of Eden. Eve was the first one to step outside of that protective arrangement God had made. God made man. He formed the woman from the man. And they were together. God put them together in the garden. And when she listened to the serpent, what, what, what was it that she did? Yeah, she didn't look listen to her husband. We don't know what he said, but we know what God told him. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And instead of turning to him and saying, You hear this guy over here? The serpent. I'm not doing it. And if Adam was strong, he'd have said, Good. Let's get away from him. He would have protected her from that. But no, she listened to the serpent. She ate of the fruit, and the Bible says, and she gave of the fruit to her husband who was with her. He was right there, but he still didn't protect her. Ladies and men, never give the adversary an occasion to accuse you of being intimate with a person who is not your spouse. Beware of your environment, and beware of the people in it. And I believe Elisha was very conscious of this dilemma, so he just avoided it. Verse 13, And he said unto him, now this is Elisha talking to Gehazi. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king? or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. Notice that Elisha had Gehazi carry a message to this woman. He said, ask her this. And so that shows they were not in the chamber together, and they weren't even within speaking distance. These questions Elisha sent Gehazi appeared to be a test, at least to me. And by the nature of these questions, there must have been people who tried to use Elisha's fame to gain an audience with a king or with a military captain, which would have been the equivalent of a general. The word captain is also translated prince or governor, so it's not limited to the captains who have two bars on their shoulders today. I have a captain, but he's not the boss of the Rockwell County Sheriff's Office. He has a chief deputy, and he has a sheriff. But in the Bible, the, the captain is the one in charge. That's a person in charge. Perhaps some man before this had asked Elisha to put in a good word for his son who was in the military, maybe for a promotion or a cushy assignment. But I love this woman's answer. To all of that, she said, I dwell among mine own people. She was comfortable among her own people. She did not desire to have her name mentioned to the king or to the captain of the host. Have you ever read those questionnaires that people ask? I think they probably have them on Facebook, but we used to have these little books when I was in about sixth grade, they call it a slam book. Anybody ever have one of those? Silliest thing i ever seen. But it is a questionnaire, and so what you did is you read it, and then you wrote your answers down, and whoever had it collected all as a survey, collected all this information from people and used it for whatever their purpose was. But there's a, a question that I've seen before, well, even on the Internet, and it says... If you could have a meal with anyone you wanted, who would that be? How many of you have ever seen a question like that? Yeah. Yeah. You know what my answer is? I bet you all are wondering, well, who is it that Brother Andy wants to eat with? Get ready. Get your pens out. If I could have a meal with anyone I wanted, I would have a meal with the same people I have meals with every day, my family. That is an easy one for me. In fact, for me to say well, I would eat with Abraham Lincoln or I would eat with George Washington, would be to say that my favorite meal partners are not the ones in my own family. And that's not true. Or I might answer the question like she did. I eat among my own people. To that question, who would you want to have dinner with? My own people. I love my church family. I love my neighbors. I love my family more than any of them. And that's who I want to eat with. And that's how this woman was here. What this woman answer shows as well is the purity of her motive for having Elisha eat and sleep at her house. I didn't call you here because I want you to go talk to the king or talk to the captain of the host. I'm, I'm good. I'm comfortable in my own skin. Maybe that would be a up to date way of saying that. Now verse 14. So we conclude by looking at verses 13 and 14 that Gehazi, or Gehazi, Gehazi then took that answer back to Elisha and said, hey, here's what she said. And so now Elisha's talking and he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, verily, she hath no child and her husband is old. The question was, what then is to be done for her? And I think this question reinforces the earlier point that many must have come to Elisha before this time seeking worldly favors, probably the type mentioned earlier. Why else would he specifically ask whether she wanted her name to be mentioned to the king or the captain of the host? And Gehazi's answer was, verily she hath no child. So this is a barren woman. She was just like Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was just like Rachel, who was also barren. What we don't know here is whether this Shunammite woman told Gehazi, Hey, look, I've got, I have got—I do have one favor for you to ask. I'd like to have a son. I'd like to have a child. It doesn't say that she said that. It just says that Gehazi said she doesn't have a child and her husband is old. Now, those are things he could have observed just by being there for a little while. Didn't didn't see any kids running around and observing the husband, observing the wife. He could have come to those conclusions. When he said her husband is old, that insinuated that it would be impossible for this Shunammite woman to ever have a child with her husband. She's barren and he's old. Even if when he was young, apparently that didn't matter. But now he's old and she's still barren. So the odds, the probability of having a child went downhill. Some men have had children in their old age. Methuselah was 187 when Lamech was born. Adam was 130 when Seth was begotten. So this is no problem for God, just for man. Just in the eyes of man. We saw it with Abraham and Sarah. You remember how old Sarah was when she conceived? She was 90. Abraham was 99. That was no problem for God. Verse 15. And he said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the door. So before the Shunammite woman was out of speaking range... And now she's been called to where Elisha was, but she only stood in the door. I just love that. She didn't go in. And even if she had, Gehazi was right there. He had a witness. And I love the way this was handled. It's so simple. It's so easy to do it. and Yet it's so simple to forget to do it too. Verse 16. And he said... Now Elisha is speaking directly to this Shunammite woman. About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. That phrase, about this season, according to the time of life, if you look in the New King James translation, it says, about this time next year. So it means the same thing, about this time next year. And I noticed that the Shunammite woman's answer was not to laugh, as Abraham did when God told him Sarah would bear him a son there in Genesis 17, but to be dismayed thinking the prophet lied to her. She said, thou man of God, meaning it ought to go against your character to lie to me about what God has said. But in this verse... Elisha doesn't tell the woman, the Lord hath said this. He just said, according about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. So in her defense, she may not have known whether Elisha was just being optimistic, in appreciation for what she and her husband had done for him, or whether he had actually heard from the Lord. But she certainly had the same response inwardly as Abraham and as Sarah. And we know they were righteous in God's eyes. Verse 17, And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. The woman's initial doubt was at what Elisha said, not necessarily what God was capable of doing. Sometimes it takes us a minute to hook those two together, doesn't it? If you ask a person who's lost, who knows of the gospel. Say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If thou shalt believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And you can give a person who's lost all those scriptures and they'll say, amen, I I believe that. But what they often don't believe is that God will actually do that for me. They don't say he can't do that, but will he do that for me? So there's that little that delay, that little gap. And that gap is closed by faith. Simply accepting what God said is true. So maybe that's what was going on with this Shunammite woman. But in either case, notice what the woman did in response to this promise as we close. She did her part. She could have told her husband, you know what? The man of God said, I'll have a son about this time next year, but I don't know. Let's just give up. Let's let's forget this and just enjoy the remaining years of the sunset of our life, looking out over the lake. No. She didn't say there's no way an old guy like you can give me a barren woman a child. See, God doesn't do math like we do. He doesn't do science like we do. Not only did God open that barren womb, but he also gave vitality to that man who was called an old man. And the result is that a son was born at the very time Elisha said it would be born. God is gracious and God is faithful. And we'll stop right there. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to come into your house and study your word. And Lord, your word is precious to us who are your sheep. And Father, I pray for those who are here, those who've tuned in, that from this text we would glean all the truth that you would have us to understand today and then apply it in our own lives, be faithful to carry it out, to tell others about it. And Lord, I just thank you for that joy, that excitement on the inside that we get when we See truth revealed in your word. And as we go into our next hour, may the singing, the praying, the preaching of your word be pleasing to you and edifying to the people. In Jesus' name, amen.